Good morning, everyone. We are very glad you could join us today. My name is Nayaswami Ananta. This is Nayaswami Maria. And we want to welcome our expanding light guests and any tulip drop-ins that have come. You're welcome. Glad you're here. And of course, our community members and our yoga teachers training and um, all our guests and visitors and our family on the internet. I would like to read from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda, and this week is Deeds versus Intentions. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Jesus Christ emphasized repeatedly the spirit, not the letter of the law. In chapter 5 of the Gospel of St. Matthew, he speaks of the sin of killing and of the legal punishment attendant on that sin, but says that more important than the act is the desire to kill or to do harm. He shows that the sin of harmful desire goes beyond merely wanting to kill. My message to you, he said, is this. Whoever is angry with his brother without cause already stands condemned. Whoever contemptuously calls his brother a fool shall answer to it for the Supreme Council. And whoever calls his brother an outcast of God shall be in danger of hell fire. Brother here means any other human being. For all of us in the highest sense are brothers and sisters children of our one father, mother, God. The true self of one is the self of all. To hurt another is, even if one doesn't realize it, to hurt oneself. Swami Kriyananda in the path recalls an episode in which the master, Paramahansa Yogananda, revealed his sense of identity even with the plants. One day, Kriyananda wrote, we were moving a delicate but rather heavy tropical plant into position on the hillside. Our handling evidently was too rough for Master cried out, Be careful what you are doing. Can't you feel? It's alive. To wish death to anyone, to wish even harm to another creature, is to deny in oneself the reality of that divine life of which all of us are manifestations. It is, in short, to deny the eternal truth proclaimed by the Bhagavad Gita in the second chapter. This self is never born, nor does it perish. Once existing, it cannot ever cease to be. It is birthless, eternal, changeless, ever itself. It is not slain when the body is slain. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh, 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 oh. I'd like to just take a moment to thank uh, everyone who sets up for these Sunday services and makes it possible to get a lot of people into a relatively small space, and uh, especially for the 
tulips today. The tulip festival has come to us at Sunday service. It's just uh, beautiful to see and feel their energies. Uh, I'd like to read from Whispers from Eternity. And these are the words of Yogananda. And this reading is entitled, In the Temple of United Hearts. It befits not thy lily-tender feet to dance on the stony soil of hard hearts. On the petals of my sympathy for others, may thy tenderness dance forever. Divine Mother, may I feel thy heart throbs in my own heart, thy joy in my happiness thy wise direction in all my activity, thy spirit in my soul. Divine Mother, I lay all the flowers of my love at thy feet of eternity. Oh, open wide the flowers of my budding devotion and release thy fragrance that it may spread from my soul to the souls of others ever whispering of thee. I pray to behold my love reflected in others. In the light of that greater love, may I behold thine unveiled face of perfect compassion. May I behold my true self in others, that I perceive thee ever enthroned in our united hearts. At the heart of my whispered prayers, I feel stirring thy silent whispers. In the light of my burning candle of devotion, I behold at last thy sacred blaze of perfect love. O Divine Mother, unite our hearts as one heart, so that on the sacred altar of united hearts, we may find thine omnipresence enthroned forever. So again, welcome. And the reading today is on deeds versus intentions. And I wanted to begin with a story that Yogananda shares in his autobiography. And uh, at this time, at the time of this story, it's World War I. And Yogananda, being the sensitive being that he uh, was and is, was feeling the suffering of humankind through the medium of this war and feeling it deeply. And as he was meditating, he was uh, at his father's home in Calcutta on Gurpar uh, Road, and he was in the attic room, and he was meditating there, and all of a sudden he felt himself in the body of a captain on a battleship in the war. And within moments, the ship in its entirety exploded. They had a lot of uh, armor, weapons there on the ship. It all just exploded. They were shot and it exploded. And the captain was thrown into the sea and survived along with a few others. 
And he felt himself as this captain swimming through the water and landing at the shore. And no sooner had he stood up than a bullet struck him in the chest and he fell down dying. And he was gasping for breath and very near death when all of a sudden, like, just like that, Yogananda was himself back in the meditation room in his father's home. And he said he was so thrilled to be alive. And he pinched his skin and he moved his body. And he was happy to be present again in the physical body. And just as he was feeling the joy of the circumstance, just like that again, he felt himself in the body of this captain, now dead, there on the beach. And he cried out in his consciousness, Lord, am I dead or am I alive? What is happening? What is going on? And God answered him and said, what does it matter, death and life? You are neither of these. I have made you in my very image of light. Awake and become your dreamless being. And in that moment, Yogananda's consciousness was again in present time. I wanted to begin with this story because it's really key to our understanding of this very strong. You know, Jesus has spoken very strongly here. And we are to get this message. And we can really only get it in that awareness, in that growing awareness of ourselves as made in the image of God's light. That needs to become the fullness of our reality, the fullness of our consciousness. You know, it's not enough to look at a person, to smile at a person, if our thoughts and our feelings, our energies, aren't totally there within that smile. Indeed, it is our thoughts, it is our feelings that reverberate out into action. And so we need to be very aware of where our consciousness is. You know, we can look out upon the world and we can say, oh, what is wrong with those people? Why does that person look that way? You know, why is that person angry? Why does those people behave that way? And we can look out and we can see what is wrong with the world. But then where are we? Where is our consciousness? That's the pain that Jesus was speaking of. That's the living hell that Jesus was speaking of. Because when our thoughts and our feelings are of a different nature, no matter what we're doing outwardly, there is going to be pain there. There is going to be suffering there. But if we get into that consciousness that we are made in God's image of light, that everybody is made in that light, and then strive to live in that manner, the world will be a very different place. This is really the, 
the panacea, the magic, the magic pivotal point upon which our consciousness needs to rest. We and everyone else is made of God's light. Whatever the dream is, whatever the drama is, whether it's life, whether it's death, whether it's disharmony, we have to hold to that singular truth. And if we do, reality be, will be very different for us and very different for those around us. There is a marvelous story of an abbot of a monastery. And he and just a few brothers remained. The numbers had dwindled. Times had changed. People were feeling different, distracted by the world, whatever the reason was. There was just the little handful of them. And one day, musing about this and troubled about this, the abbot was gazing out into the surrounding landscape, and he could see smoke rising from a little, a little cabin that was out there in the woods. And to that cabin, oftentimes, a rabbi frequented there. And he thought, I'll go talk to him. Maybe he can advise me or, or give us some encouragement. And so he went there to talk to the rabbi, and he explained the situation. You know, there's just, there's just the five of us. What's going to happen? How are we going to stay strong? How are we going to survive? And the rabbi, he felt compassion towards this individual, but he really had nothing to say, nothing that could really contribute to the circumstance. He, his experience was exactly the same. No one was coming to the synagogue either. You know, people just weren't interested. So they talked for a while, they visited, and then the abbot took leave. But as he was leaving, the rabbi said to him, amongst you all is the Messiah. Well, the abbot didn't know what to make of this. And he went back to the monastery. He shared with his brothers about the visit. They asked him, you know, what was said. And he said, the rabbi said that the Messiah is amongst us. I don't know what he means. And the brothers, I don't know what he means. And they started to just talk among themselves. And one of them, and then it got quiet, and one of them was thinking to himself, well, it's obviously the abbot. He's here to lead us. It must be the abbot. And then one of the others was thinking, gosh, it couldn't be one of us. It certainly couldn't be so-and-so. He's always getting angry all the time, just always angry. And then as his thoughts went on, he, it occurred to him, but he's always right. He's always right. Maybe he is the Messiah. And then someone else was thinking to themselves, well, let's see, there's all of us. It couldn't be me. I'm not the Messiah. Could I be the Messiah? Maybe I am the Messiah. <laughs> and so this energy was going on, and inwardly amongst themselves, they felt a little bit at the precipice, you know? It was, well, if one of my brothers is the Messiah, then I need to behave appropriately. I don't know who it is, but I better start behaving appropriately to everybody. And they all did that. They all just started relating 
to one another in a very different way. And the energy started to change. And after just a little while, people started to come. They would come seeking the advice of the monks. They would come because it was a nice vibration, a very wholesome, very uplifting vibration. They wanted to be around it. They wanted to be close to it. They even brought their families and had picnics, you know, on the grounds out there, outside of the monastery. And by and by, more and more people came and young people started to come and young men started to come and they were magnetized by that vibration of consciousness, of perfect harmony. And they wanted to be a part of it and they wanted to join and the monastery began to build. And it's, it's such a beautiful, clear example of how our thoughts ripple out and create an energy and in the importance of harmonious thoughts, the importance of harmonious feelings. Swami Kriyananda had a dream toward the end of his life and I was rethinking this the other day and a different part of it caught my attention. And he said in the dream that he just was, people were all around him and good people and not so good people. And he was looking at them and he was, you know, considering where they were at. And he had this feeling within himself that all they really want, whether acting well, nobly or not, is happiness. That's what all people are seeking. And in that realization, he understood people in a very different way, that if he could just go to that truth, that point of truth, then the world was going to look very different to him and respond very differently. And he said after that dream, all he could feel, he, was comp he said he was changed, all he could feel was love for everyone. All he could do was smile at everyone. And Ananta and I were talking about this the other night because I said, you know, to know Swamiji, and many of us have known Swami Kriyananda in this life, to know him is to know an individual of such just unfathomless <laughs> kindness and goodness. You know, just so kind to everybody, so open to everybody. How could it be that he said, I felt changed in myself. And we were talking about this, and I, it, it, it felt to me that, you know, until we are one with God, there is always a little refinement that can happen. There is always that little tweak of something that needs to become even more able to amplify goodness and kindness and love for all humankind. And this is what he was sharing in that. We all have a work to do in that. We can all express more fully divine love. We can all be a greater friend than we are even now to others, not just the ones we know, the ones who are familiar, the ones we love, but those that we don't know to be welcoming in that same kind of way when Yogananda came to this country early on, 
the man, uh, George Eastman, was his name. And for those of you who are old enough to remember, he was the inventor of the Kodak camera. So, a while back. And Yogananda met him. Yogananda said outwardly, he was very cold, as hard as steel, is the way he described him. He was a philanthropist as well, very generous. And Yogananda considered this for a moment upon meeting him. And he could feel what a challenging position that can sometimes be to an individual of wealth. People are just always knocking on your door for something. And you don't always know the motives of people who want to meet you, who are so anxious to meet you and know you. And so Yogananda was thinking this, and George Eastman came right up to him and just said, I would like to invite you to my home. Will you come? And Yogananda said, I will if you will also come to my home. And so one day George Eastman came to Yogananda's home, and Yogananda was cooking curries for him, which he enjoyed to do, doing you know, when he had guests. And George Eastman said, it's wonderful to see you cooking. I also like to cook. And so you know, this, this door started to open. And Yogananda said to him, I want to meet you as a friend, not as a man of wealth. And that just totally took down the wall. You know, from that point on, they shared for some hours. And then George left, and the next day, Yogananda said he received a camera, a Kodak camera, from Mr. Eastman. But that was just his nature. And through that example, you know, the teaching of how we need to be ultimately to everyone. One time someone asked Swamiji, it was an interview, asked Swami Kriyananda, how do you manage your organization? And he said, I help people to fulfill themselves. You can't even think of an answer like that. <laughs> you know, right? It's just not, it's not the answer that comes to mind. But that's how Swami Kriyananda did things. I help people to fulfill themselves. Who would say that? You know, most people are so worried about themselves, the project, their project, you know, seeing themselves as the doer. And Swamiji just saw it as the flow of God's energy, the flow of God's light, working through not just him, but everybody, everybody, to the the stranger, the guest who walked into the room. Quite possibly they could have the idea that would work at this time, that would work in this situation. That's just how he was to help people, all people, fulfill themselves, to help people realize their highest potential. That's what he's saying. So when we look at people, when we hold a thought about them, a feeling about them, let us make sure that it's on that level of helping them to realize their highest potential. Maybe that's just a prayer, you know, at this point in time. But don't underestimate the power of prayer, the power of meditation, 
to bless people and help them to improve and change their lives. One time Sri Yukteswar, Yogananda's guru, said to him, Yogananda was in India at that time and he was teaching the children at the school that he founded. And his younger brother, I think it must have been Sananda, was there at school at that time. And Yukteswar said to him, do you love everybody equally? And Yogananda said, yes, I do. And Yukteswar said, no, <laughs> not yet. And Yogananda thought about it, you know. I mean, he listened to his guru, he listened to Yukteswar. What is he seeing here that I don't yet understand? What does he see here that I don't, you know, that I'm not yet loving everybody equally? And then he thought of his brother, his younger brother. And he realized he had this thought, he's mine. I need to watch out for him. I need to make sure he does well. I need to take care of him. And he saw that thought, and then he started to distance himself from that thought deliberately and try to reach a more impersonal place in his consciousness. Being impersonal is not a bad thing. It's how God is able to love everybody, Yogananda says, because just enough removed that he can see and experience the unity and the equality. If we're too close, then we get into the differences. You know, again, why do they look that way? Why don't they behave properly? Why are they fighting? Why is there disharmony? You step back a little bit, and as Yogananda saw, as Swamiji saw, as all of the masters see, there is this underlying unity. And that becomes pronounced because the consciousness is in the light of God. I am made in the image of God, and so is everybody else. And if we can hold to that consciousness, even if we can just aspire to that consciousness, then it is natural to be harmonious. It is natural to be able to find a way to cooperate with others. And in that unity, in that consciousness of unity, that then becomes the guiding force of our lives. And we want to hold to that because we know it will preserve that consciousness of love. It'll preserve that consciousness of global unity. Bless you all.
just a dream, or does joy love in every stream? Is it love? Is it love? 